You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Here's some rules for you. No phone calls before 7 a.m. or after 9 p.m. Say hello and introduce yourself by name when answering the phone. Pick up after three rings. Those are a few pieces of advice from vintage pamphlets on phone etiquette. They might sound familiar if you grew up with a landline in your house, but a lot has changed over the last decade. Today, more than 9 in 10 Americans have a smartphone, which is changing when and how we communicate with each other. So what are the proper ways to make and answer calls nowadays or to not make calls? Our next guest talked to an etiquette expert and a bunch of people of all ages about their phone habits and compiled a handy guide for how to be a polite phone user in 2023. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have personal rules about when you want to call and when you want to text or to have people call or text you? Is there a popular phone faux pas, a phone pas that drives you nuts? How has your phone use changed as you move from landline to cell phone or cell phone to smartphone? Uh, and how about people talking on their phones in public? How about doing it on speakerphone? Love it or not? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Heather Kelly is a reporter for the Washington Post where she covers how technology affects our everyday lives. Heather, thanks a lot for joining us today. I'm happy to be here by phone. I'll point out as well. That's right. Yes, we're being uh, we're being very polite with each other and answering each other's calls, though. Now you you talk to an etiquette expert. You talk to a lot of people about their uh, phone pet peeves. Was there one thing that came out like this is a consensus? Everybody hates this. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of these were really dividing people, especially along generational lines. But the one thing that really brought us together was using speakerphone in public. <laughs> that seemed to be universally kind of a who's who's doing that and why. Um, so, you know, if nothing else, I feel like we can agree on that. Please don't do that. Now, for a long time, we had sort of, you know, landlines in our houses uh, once we got out of party lines. And we had a long period to adapt to that. It seems like things have changed so fast that people are really scrambling to catch up. And as you mentioned, people of different ages may have very different rules. Yeah, I think especially if you've been making phone calls for a really long time, um, you, you've sort of settled into these habits that uh, a lot of these developed when we had answering machines <laughs> and to be told, oh, we don't do things that way anymore can be a little jarring. Um, and I've also had a lot of pushback of like, you know what, I'm a boomer. I don't really feel like changing my habits now. And I also respect that. Now, the one of the biggest questions and maybe I think one of the more divisive ones for some people is, can I just call you? without prearrangement, without sending a text first, what kind of responses did you have for the uh, unexpected phone call? So I've been talking to people about this I, basically since Apple first announced some features at the beginning of the summer. Um, and Gen Z would really prefer it if you text first. If you just give a heads up, uh, just a random out of nowhere phone call. I don't know if you've received these. If somebody calls you and you're not expecting it, I think a lot of us have that instinct of, oh my God, what's Who wrong? Died? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so if you could text, but also, and this is very important, say, I need to talk and say it's not an emergency or say why, <laughs> or else we'll also think who died. Um, it just helps everybody's anxiety, planning, and schedules. Is there room for, you know, hey, uh, mom and dad, we know we can call each other whenever, or do, do people kind of like make their arrangements for everybody else? I have one set of rules. You and me, we can call each other whenever we want to. It, there is the like the mom and bestie exclusions to all of these. I think if you have an intimate relationship with somebody, you know them very well, you know what their phone call etiquette is. You know if you could just call them in the middle of the day or not. 
And on the flip side, they'd probably feel comfortable enough to know that they don't have to answer if they're not in a place where they can talk. Uh, so I think those are definitely their own animal. But maybe this will this will help some parents ask their children, like, what do you prefer? What can I do to make your life a little easier? All right. Now, Heather, here's another scenario. I call your cell phone and you don't answer and it goes to voicemail. Should I leave a voicemail? I mean, look, you can leave a voicemail. I'm not going to stop you. Am I going to listen to that voicemail? Probably not. I haven't listened to my voicemails in years. Um, a lot of us have this technology now that automatically transcribes them. And so we are reading them. It's a faster, more efficient way to get the information, except the transcriptions can be wrong. And then you come to the conclusion, well, that should have been a text or an email. So really, voicemails are this leftover answering machine technology that I feel like we should let die. Talking to Heather Kelly, reporter for The Washington Post. She covers technology, changing technology, and how it affects our everyday lives. We are talking about the new phone etiquette or phone etiquettes. Not everybody agrees on every point. Love to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Now, we're, we're old-fashioned here on Central Time. We want you to call us <laughs> unsolicited-like. We'll pick up the phone and talk to you. 800-642-1234 is the number. Is there something about... Uh, talking in public, uh, calling without texting, whatever it might be that really annoys you about phone life. And do you have intergenerational differences where you want it one way, somebody of a diff different generation wants it a different way, call in at 800-642-1234. Okay, Heather, talking on phones in public. Now, speakerphone, I think there's a consensus, uh, except for the people who actually do it, don't talk on speakerphone in public. What about if I'm just out and about public? I got the phone up to my ear, not speaker, but I got a loud voice. I don't know. Uh, what are our attitudes about that these days? So you're unique in that you have radio voice. I think most people have like <laughs> people indoor love to listen voices. To me. <laughs> exactly. You do this professionally. I, I mean, I think it's fine. I, I would just be aware that people can hear you. And I mean, if you're having a juicy conversation, I personally will be very careful to listen to everything you say. So, you know, just be aware there's people around you. If you're walking around, like, that's a great time to take a phone call. If you're in the middle of a line at a store, maybe not so much. Okay, now here's something. I don't think you got to this in your article, and I'm kind of dumbfounded by this. Public restrooms. I have encountered this where somebody is in a stall having a conversation uh, that clearly could have waited. It wasn't about a medical emergency or anything. Like, in my book, I would, I would never even think of doing that. Is that something that came up in your uh, focus group, Heather? You know, actually, like pri private restrooms came up, um, public restrooms did not. But there is like some people will just take a call whenever like they don't know how to, you know, decline a call and text. I'll call you later. And they're answering in the bathroom. Um, I think I speak for a few. I think maybe this is another universal thing we can agree on. Don't answer the phone if you're in a in a stall or on a toilet. Please, please don't do that. Yeah, I won't even text you if I'm on the toilet. That's the Rob Ferret rock solid guarantee. If I'm communicating <laughs> with you for anything about a bathroom related medical emergency, I'm not in the bathroom. Let's go to our callers at 800-642-1234. Jay is with us in Green Lake. Jay, hello. Hey, thanks for taking the call. What did you want to tell us about, Jay? So you're just talking about voicemails and making them obsolete, and I disagree 100% that many times the tone of the call or, you know, the voice and tone that goes along with the message is very important. Um, and in the case of loved ones, I think that's important also. I wish I would have saved many voicemails that I got from loved ones that are no longer with us. 
Jay, thanks for the call. And Heather, I think in your uh, post article on this, I saw one of the first commenters mentioned something like that, having the the voice message from a, a departed loved one. But Jay's thought like, hey, that voicemail, you're hearing my emotions that you wouldn't hear in the text. What do you think? So two things. One, in the story, we also say an exception to the voicemail thing is anything that is an emotional connection, a loved one. Uh, specifically, I want people to call and wish me a happy birthday with a song. Um, and I've also gone through the process and written about like how to save those voicemails because it's not easy to do. Um, so yeah, I totally agree on that point. I do think if there's something where tone is important that maybe you should wait for it to be a phone call. Uh, when we talked to some experts, they recommended that text-based communication is for, for facts that you want to communicate. If you want to have a fight with somebody, if you want to have an argument or anything with nuance, do it on video, do it on a phone, ideally do it in person. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, that's getting to our caller's point, too, that text, you don't convey that nuance. And the reader of that text, especially in a emotional fight situation, uh, may put spins on it that weren't intended, right? Yeah, and I mean, if you're out here leaving angry voicemails, uh, I'm interested in what's going on in your life because I love <laughs> gossip, but um, don't leave me an angry voicemail. Wait till I answer. Thanks a lot for that call. Joshua is with us in Viroqua. Joshua, hi. Hi. Oh, go ahead, Joshua. What did you want to bring up? Yeah, so I'm from an area that has lots of Luddites, and um, I call myself a Luddite, and, and then as well as there's lots of Amish that grew out that live out here and uh and in in my experience calling people on the cell phone i it used to be that um calling in the evening or um after hours was a friendly thing to do and leaving a voicemail seemed like a reasonable thing but it i've um had people get um seemingly irritated that i would think that they would get those. Gotcha. And Joshua, thanks a lot for the call. This is a huge change, Heather, that people are living through now where it was a norm to have that friendly evening, possibly unexpected phone call. And uh, I don't know, Joshua could like uh, invite people to call him, I guess, and, and say, hey, no, I'm still doing this the old way. And it's funny, a couple things have changed. One, we used to pay different amounts depending on the time of day, which I always thought like we were making our phone calls on nights and weekends because that's what we could afford. Uh, but one tip that I, I got after I wrote this was changing your outgoing voicemail. If you really don't want to receive a voicemail, make your message, hey, don't leave me a voicemail. Like these are two, two people are in these relationships and one can also set boundaries. Uh, so I think he should keep leaving those people voicemails. Maybe they'll enjoy them later. Joshua, thanks a lot for that call. Heather Kelly is with us, technology reporter at the Washington Post, with us to uh, check out the modern rules of phone etiquette and the debates over phone etiquette, phone versus text, leave voicemails, talk in public, and more. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Is there something that bugs you one way or the other about how we do and don't use calls, texts, voicemails, when and where we do them? Do you have differences with your peers or maybe with family members from different generations? Call 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation, maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our talk with Heather Kelly about the do's and don'ts of calling and texting and voicemail and speakerphone. And you can join in at 800-642-1234 with an old-fashioned phone call. 
voicemails. Love them, hate them. Do you have any phone pet peeves? How about older phone etiquette that you still swear by? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls now. Jeremy is with us in Mineral Point. Jeremy, hi. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. I just want to say this is a really fun topic to kind of chime in on. And I just want to say for myself, like, there's some things that trigger, right? Once you hear someone say etiquette, you think about assumptions, universal truths around rules and norms. And so I, I kind of question some of those things. And then I also think about with my particular experience, like I'm hard at hearing out of my left side. So oftentimes I do speak on speakers so that I can capture everything. But I'm also mindful of my needs, not like, you know, triumphing or, you know, running over someone else's needs in, in that way. But I'm, I, when I have this conversation, I'm thinking about seen, unseen, and unforeseen reasons for why folks utilize phones in ways that we might not see it as being socially acceptable. And I think we kind of got to be mindful of that as we try to establish these all swiping norms. Jeremy, thanks a lot for the call. A great point. And that reminds me, Heather, I saw some, I, I did read the comments on this article I, that you wrote. I don't always, some people talk about, you know, I have arthritis or something like that. Texting, not really an option for me. There's going to be, as Jeremy says, reasons why some of these rules, uh, such as they are, don't work for everybody. Absolutely. And I think, I, I, by the way, I didn't, I didn't read the comments. I don't like when people are mean to me. Um, I, <laughs> they weren't. They were pretty nice in that one, I thought. <laughs> I'm like no arbiter of, of like uh, rules that are for everybody. And I, I try to always balance that once you actually get into the story. Um, but accessibility is a big one. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's really important. And I think this is, it goes back to knowing who you're dealing with and what your relationships are. Like if you know you have an older grandparent who um can't text or sort of struggles with that technology like you have to make space have phone calls their way um one rule i actually i got from a lot of older users um because they also have some pet peeves was when you're on a video call i think sometimes grandkids or their own children will wander around with these cameras and it's very disorienting um so i think you know there's things people would like on all sides to make things a little more comfortable and there are exceptions to everything so i totally agree with him on that thanks again for that call jeremy at 800-642-1234 yeah like i can get motion sickness from some video games and yeah i definitely uh with video calls with my kids encourage them to be uh, as stationary as possible do i mean is this do younger people say push back on that they say no it's no problem we can wander around I think a lot of this is just communication, like somebody saying, hey, I have phone call anxiety. Let me know when you're going to call. And then older people are saying, hey, I get dizzy. Can you just say still? <laughs> like if we just communicate what we need in our kind of life, I think the people we love and know will be really open to it. Let's go now to Mona in Madison. Mona, what are your thoughts? Hi, um, I love voicemails because I use them to screen out spam. I have an outgoing message that says if I don't recognize the number, I don't answer it. And if they expect to call back, they need to leave me a voice message. And it's especially important because some of the numbers might be like a doctor's back office or something that I wouldn't have in my memory on my phone and it wouldn't it would come up unknown. You know, so I, I like that. Mona, thanks for the call. And I think that is uh, pretty common, Heather, people uh, using voicemail to screen. If it's important, they'll leave a voicemail, and then I'll find out that it's important. Absolutely. And I actually write about scams a lot. And my number one tip for everybody, and God, I wish my mom would listen to me, is never answer a phone call from a number you don't know. Uh, it can be really tempting. Like, what if it is the doctor's office? And this is where voice, this is why it still exists. If it really is something like a doctor, mm -hmm. they will find a way to communicate that with you. Um, scammers are more likely to leave you something that's clearly sketchy or to hang up. 
And uh, thanks for that call, Mona. And that reminds me, Heather, you wrote about uh, some technology now uh, where you can listen to the voicemail in progress and decide if you want to pick up. This is like how we, for a while, we used to screen calls using our answering machines. You could hear the person talking, lunge for the phone if it's somebody you realized you wanted to talk or they said something shocking that you need to follow up on right away. Now we can, uh, at least with some technology, we can do this. Yeah, this is so funny. I'm also I I had my own party line in my answering machine when I was a kid. Um, and I had to explain that to some of the Gen Z people I interviewed. Uh, yeah. So if you have an iOS, you have iOS on your iPhone, the newest version, it will it will transcribe the voicemail in real time, and you can decide if you want to pick up. Um, but the funny thing is, the original technology we didn't have caller ID, we didn't know who it was, and that's why we did it. Or we needed that extra time to run to our physical phone that was connected to a wall. Um, so I'm not sure how popular this feature is yet, but I think we'll probably find out over the next year. Thanks again for that call, Mona. We're talking about modern well, rules, debates, arguments over phone etiquette, what to do, what not to do, and uh, how things differ from one generation, maybe one person to the next. Still time for your call at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Uh, Leslie joins us now in Cottage Grove. Leslie, hello. Hello, thank you for taking this call. Well, I'm not Gen Z. I was born in the 1900s, as I've heard recently. (laughs) (laughs) And what what irks me so much is when someone calls me and I'll answer the phone, hello, and they say, is this Leslie? My only response can possibly be, who's calling, please? Uh If people would say, this is the clinic or this is Joe or whoever is Leslie here. Announce who you are. <laughs> Interesting. Thank you. Leslie, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Heather, the debates over, you know, uh, or, or thoughts on how we identify ourselves uh, in calls. Is this something that came up? Now, that this seems more like a business call sort of scenario than uh, your friend calling. They know it's Leslie. Well, but also the scammers, like I, I think Leslie has the, the right point. Also, now that we're on cell phones, like we're usually the only people answering our own phones. Mm. Um, so it's not a question. I personally answer my phone. This is Heather. Sam. So Except you know, if you call me, you'll know right away. Yes. You, if you answer it, this is Heather. I think we need to talk. <laughs> Leslie, thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. We've got a couple of comments on uh, the Ideas Network Facebook page. Gabe writes, if it's a call before a text, I'm assuming it's really important. And even then, a text to accompany that would be preferred. If it's a number I don't know, there's a 0% chance I'm answering it. Someone leaves a voicemail. I'll listen to it, though even bots leave voicemails uh, these days. I think Gabe is in about my situation and a lot of people. Does does it seem like he's kind of falling in the norm uh, for the people you talk to, Heather? Um. Yeah, I think so. It's funny. I, I also think the people who who find sort of the rules that I came up with, um, the, the people who dislike them the most, are the ones who are the most vocal and the people who agree with them, um, you know, they're waiting until I text them to talk on the phone. Excellent. Thanks for uh, writing in, Gabe. And James writes, uh, since I keep my phone on silent most of the time, I tend to miss most voice calls. I always check my voicemail as soon as I'm able. Unless it's a robot call, I'll follow up ASAP. Most of my communication is texting, though. And yeah, like uh, in my, I have my phone in my pocket now. It is heavily silenced, of course, because I'm on the radio. Is that something you heard from people that I don't even leave my ringer on that often? This actually did come up, and I didn't put it in there, but um, ringers are not popular with with Gen Z. They don't have them on. They rely on, like, the vibrations or um, more text message and group text. So that is something 
that also I think as people get older and our hearing tends to go, which mine is a little in one ear, like when we do have the ringer on, we turn it up as loud as humanly <laughs> possible. Um, and sometimes we get made fun of for that. Uh, let's uh, go back to our callers. Peggy is with us now in Cumberland. Peggy, I guess you have a pet peeve for us. I do. It's what, when people get annoyed because I don't answer the phone. They, you know, they expect these cell phones to be glued to us. And I just, you know, leave it in the kitchen most of the time. If I'm not around, they're going to have to leave a message or send me a text. And that's an interesting, but thanks for that, Peggy. That's an interesting point, Heather, because, you know, when we just had landlines at home, if people call and don't get an answer, well, I guess they're not home or they're busy or something like that. There's a certain expectation that we are phonable and reachable at all times now. I love Peggy's boundaries. Um, she's an inspiration to us all. Like, don't, you don't need to be attached. You don't need to answer. You're under no obligation to be there for everybody all the time. Like, yeah, spend your time doing what you love, baking, having crafts, going for a walk. Um, I do have a friend that when you text, she'll text you back the next day. And she makes it very clear at the beginning of your relationship that this is how she rolls. Nice. And, and I'm into it. Peggy, thanks for the call. And just our last a half a minute, Heather, doing this research on this piece, did it change your own phone habits at all? N not yet. Um, I I feel like I can learn a lot from the people that do comment about accessibility features and and how you know rules can't apply to everybody. That's always a good lesson to learn. Um, I still I still want you to text me before you call though. Heather, thanks a lot for joining us by phone today. Anytime. That's Heather Kelly, reporter for the Washington Post, where she covers how technology affects our everyday lives. She joined us today for a refresher on the changing rules of texting and calling in the age of smartphones. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, how do we get reliable information from a war zone? We'll talk to experts on war reporting and how we can evaluate potential misinformation. And it's this week's edition of Food Friday with advice on how to find great recipes online and how to skip the not-so-good recipes. If you have a favorite source, a favorite way to search for online recipes, tell us about it right now. Email ideas at WPR.org. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, we'll learn about a special project in Wisconsin that's helping women farmers and other female land stewards to learn about better conservation practices and resources available to help them develop their land. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Women make up about 35% of all the agricultural producers in Wisconsin. That's 5% higher than the national average. That's according to the 2017 Census of Agriculture. A project here in Wisconsin has been bringing together multiple groups to work with women to promote conservation and land stewardship. They celebrate a number of Wisconsin women in conservation in a new publication out this month called Portraits of Love on the Land. You could join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about you? Do you own, farm, or otherwise look after a patch of land in Wisconsin? What kind of practices do you have in place around conservation, big or small? Do you have questions about opportunities to promote different kinds of conservation on a small patch of land, big patch of land, any point in between? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800 642 one, two, three, four. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. 
Esther Durayraj is Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation. She's a research agronomist at the Michael Field Agricultural Institute. Esther, welcome to Central Time. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. And Laura Langworthy is Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. Lauren, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Esther, you've been uh, celebrating a year of programming this year, including with this new publication I mentioned. Can you tell us what the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project is all about? So thanks for asking me that question. Wisconsin Women in Conservation is a program that's funded by the Natural Resources Conservation Service and led by the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, which is based out of East Detroit, Wisconsin. Um, we partner with other nonprofits, as you mentioned, in Wisconsin, namely Renewing the Countryside, Wisconsin Farmers Union and Marble Seed. Um, and we work with women landowners, farmers, um, in order to bring uh, education, outreach uh, about conservation practices. And not only that, we bring resources, um, trying to bring in the finance because women have a lot of questions on their mind, but they are good stewards. Uh, as we know, women are nurturers by nature of their families, of their land. And so, when they want to be better stewards of the land, they have this like a lot of questions about how to go about it and is that even financially possible? So um, we try to be the intermediary, bringing people who are connecting women with women. We also bring NRC's resources to them and see how they can make their dreams possible for the land. And Esther, looking at uh, portraits of love on the land, uh, conservation and stewardship means a lot of different things. Can you talk about uh, a little bit about the range of the projects that participants are doing on, on their own land? Oh, definitely. Yeah, this has been an enjoyable experience for us to bring out this book. So women are involved in um, grazing lands, in agriculture, in urban farming, wetland preservation, soil health, waterways. There's a lot of things that people, uh, women have been working on to be better stewards of the land. And so we, as we work with these women, uh, we want to uh, kind of bring out their voices uh, about what they have been doing. Uh, if you look at like many a times when we Google this, like conservation, not many of those women pop up. So we want to change that landscape because women are doing a lot of things and we want to bring those stories to their forefront. And so this book has brought about all that, so many of their stories and we thank those women who have shared their stories with us and to be open about it, to bring it to the public domain. Lauren, let's uh, visit Blue Ox Farm. Now, it sounds like uh, when you and your partner started this off, you really did have uh, conservation and stewardship in mind right at the outset. Can you talk a little bit about that that mindset, first of all? Absolutely. Well, um, when we started our farm, my, my husband, Caleb, it had really spent a lot of time aspiring to be a farmer and learning a lot about agriculture. And I was more of a nature kid who really enjoyed the outdoors and could picture myself living on a farm and all the wonderful things that could come with it, but certainly had a lot more to learn on the agricultural front. And since then, you know, our, our big adventure has been trying to figure out how to merge both of those visions and try and make our farm both a place that produces food and supports our community, but also has wild space for, you know, the the badgers and the foxes and the, the grassland birds that are endangered. Um, and so trying to balance kind of the, the economic piece and the, the personal livelihood, and then these larger goals for what our, our 
community and our landscape should look like. It's definitely a challenge, but uh, it's a fun challenge. And your farm, what you actually produce there has evolved over the years. I read in, in the book here, uh, and you've gone into grass-based animal production now, kind of as your main gig. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how uh, you do that with conservation and stewardship in mind? Absolutely. Yeah. It uh, When we first started, we started with vegetable production and we kind of joke that it's a good way to turn sweat into money. Um, doesn't take a lot of infrastructure to get going in vegetables, but it does take an awful lot of work. And um, as we were doing annual tillage and running a CSA and wholesale accounts and selling at farmers markets and into food co-ops, we were just feeling like we were spending a lot of time tilling soil and weeding. There was a lot of bare soil, even with the best production model that we were able to to kind of muster. Um, and I know some people who are able to do it much better than we were, but um, we were looking at ourselves and thinking, why can't we get more perennials into this system? And why can't we get more things covered and have less bare soil, less tillage? And so that really led us on some some self-reflection and some business model reconsideration. And, and that's how we kind of ended up in livestock, specifically rotational grazing. And so that rotational grazing allows us to really provide some good habitat, do soil building and uh, micro building, create a healthy animal, and also um, kind of manage our own labor a little bit better. We're talking about Wisconsin women in conservation. Lauren Langworthy is with us, owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler, and Esther Duraraj, program director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation, also with the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a conservation or land stewardship project going on your in your backyard, in your uh, 40 acres, whatever land you're working with? Is there something you've been doing uh, to maintain the soil, maintain animal and plant species and more, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Esther, for that uh, new farmer, uh, maybe a woman getting into farming uh, for the first time or after growing up and then returning to a farm, what kind of help is out there for them here in Wisconsin? What kind of uh, community and mentorship can they reach out for? Okay, so the way we do our program is to have these for a learning circle events. So when they do come into one of these events, they sit with a sister community of women farmers and landowners who are sharing their stories about how they started and how they built their farm or the new beginning farmer has questions, they are able to help them. And we also bring in the FSA um, and the NRCS uh, resource persons. So they are able to right away tell them what are the resources that's available for them for purchase of land or for building infrastructure or for all these conservation practices that they can do. And so they go back with a kind of a knowledge of what's available, what's existing. We also have conservation coaches. Lauren is one of our coaches here um, who will be able to tell them what are the different things that like, as she just mentioned, how she thought about a business plan and moved her farm along. These are the, these, these are the kind of stories that the women are exposed to and they learn from each other. So this is basically a peer-to-peer -peer model and we kind of uh, find motivation in each other and help the women grow in as a beginning farmer. And Lauren, I'm looking at a picture of you uh, educating uh, in the book right now. I think, why was it important for you not just to try to make uh, your farm operation a success, but to share uh, lessons you learned along the way with, with others? 
That's a great question. You know, as farmers, we are so busy. We have to have so many different types of skills from uh, business management to all the technical skills of livestock or, or plant management and health. And um, there's just so much that you need to learn. And it's really hard to start from zero in all of those arenas and become an expert in the time that we have. Um, and you really only have one opportunity a season for most uh, agricultural knowledge to be utilized and then you have to wait until the next year to try it again. So I think any time that we can support each other by sharing the knowledge we've learned, um, especially about things that can be really complex, like how to navigate some of these government program opportunities or how different ecosystems function, um, it really helps us all get further when we can share that knowledge into a general pot as opposed to hold on to it all ourselves. We're talking about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project and how it's helping uh, women landowners and other women stewards of land in Wisconsin. Our guests are Esther Durayraj, Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and Research Agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, and Lauren Langworthy, Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. A new publication out called Portraits of Love on the Land tells the story of, of a lot of these women getting involved in farmland conservation. You could join in at 800-642-1234. You can join the conversation. Are you doing some kind of conservation project on land you own or on? are you working maybe as a volunteer on public land? Love to hear your story. Or do you have questions for our guests about what it means to do land stewardship and conservation here in Wisconsin? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Barrett. We're picking up our conversation about Wisconsin Women in Conservation. Esther Durayraj is Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and a research agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. And Lauren Langworthy is Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler, featured in the new publication Portraits of Love on the Land. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you're a farmer yourself on a large or small scale, What kinds of conservation things do you do? What kind of stewardship do you do for your soil and land? Uh, And wherever you are, whatever you do, do you try to plant maybe native species to uh, help butterflies and other animal and insect species? Love to hear from you at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Esther, as I mentioned uh, earlier, you know, this isn't one size fits all. A lot of different people do different conservation uh, projects. How how could people figure out, okay, this is the land I've got. This is the uh, agriculture maybe I'm doing. What kind of conservation methods might be right for me? So when the women or landowners or farmers come to one of our events and express interest in having a conservation plan, Um, Then we right away work with them. We just have something called an intake form where we get the information about their land, their practices that they're adopting as of now, and what they want to see on their land. Um, Sometimes women straight away want to go in for CAUSHA programs, which is the EQ through NRCS, and then we connect them to the NRCS and NRCS professionals walk their land and tell them what is possible for them. And sometimes women are not ready to go there. They just want to know what can they do what are the possibilities? What are the limitations? And in that case, then we have the funding to have a technical service provider 
walk their lands. We, we make those arrangements. We find the people to walk the land, give them, talk with them, talk about the, the dreams that they have for the land. Like they may have certain dreams that can be possible or not. So this person who walks their land is able to tell them who's a conservation professional, who's able to tell them what works, what may not, what's the other options that they have. And then at the end of it, they would get a conservation plan document, which they can have it, think about it, and then go for the next step as soon as possible or as late as possible. It depends on them, but they at least have a knowledge of what can be done on their land. And Lauren, uh, you give a top conservation tip in the uh, Porches of Love on the Land book. Uh, you start uh, saying, start small. Make the case uh, for being willing to to start small, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to be a big difference maker. Yeah, well, this is, is kind of a joke to those people who know me, but um, I'm not notorious for starting small or, or keeping <laughs> things small. But um, it's it's actually really helpful, especially when you're looking at significant changes to a farming operation to change, you know, a couple of smaller things and see if you like the direction it's going and give it some time to to take hold because conservation really isn't something that happens overnight. And uh, a small change could take years, maybe even to really reflect on the land. And so being gentle and patient with yourself and not feeling like you have to do it all at once or you have to do uh, really, really big things when you're not entirely certain. It can actually help the whole process go a lot more smoothly to make it more manageable and um, more achievable. Esther, I wanted to po- uh, highlight one project in particular. Now, we might think of uh, agricultural stewardship and conservation as something that happens in rural Wisconsin, which it does. You feature, though, a project project in Milwaukee. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that one? Um, yeah, we have a, we have an urban ag network in Milwaukee as well, because, you know, actually for rural and urban settings, the agriculture is totally different sense. Uh, many of the urban gar- people are gardeners, community gardeners or backyard gardeners, and we didn't want them to be let out off the loop. So we have them as well. Uh, as a part of our group, we meet separately in Milwaukee. Um, we talk with them. Is there any pollinator planting that they would like to have? Is there, um, uh, you know, um, something with the vegetable gardens that they're raising? How can we help them? How can we have their land covered during winters, maybe a cover crop? So these are the options that we talk to them. Uh, And we also brought out a rainfall simulator a a couple of months ago for them to see, like, realistically, what happens when a rainfall event happens on their land. And, you know, uh, we bring such kind of education, which opens the eyes for them to adopt various conservation measures, even if it's in a smaller scale. And Lauren, can you talk a little more? We've talked about why you got into wanting to share uh, education about conservation. On a practical level, what does it mean to be a conservation coach? Well, that's uh, another great question. Um, I think it really depends on the person who's seeking information. Um, So our role is not as formal as, you know, when you go into the NRCS office or the the FSA offices or anything like that. Um, No government centers here. We're just uh, farmers talking to other farmers about what might work and what might not. And so I'm able to share with people um, when I kind of hear what kinds of questions they have and what kind of hopes and dreams they have, I can say, oh, I happen to know about this program that could maybe provide some cost share toward that bigger goal you have. Or I know about an organization that's doing some work in that arena that could help you find some more resources. Uh, there are networks of other men and women that to get connected with. And, and so it's really trying to 
hear what a person is looking for and help them along their pathway to um, just not have to do it alone and not have to find everything from scratch. Talk to Lauren Langworthy and Esther Dureraj about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project and the new book from that project, Portraits of Love on the Land, featuring women doing all different kinds of stewardship and conservation. Esther, can you talk a little more about uh, why focusing on women in particular? You were starting to touch on that earlier. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the particular needs of women in conservation and stewardship? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Um so the way we look at it, women are nurturers. We see that we take care of the family, we take care of relationships, we take care of the land. We are mostly the glue in every single thing that happens around us. And we see that uh, women have great dreams for their land, but there are a lot of questions in the mind, like, is this workable? Is this financially feasible? And there are times that we find it difficult to ask those questions. Uh, and so when we bring a group of women together, we have seen this great bonding that happens within a period of an hour because we sit in a learning circle. We start out with introductions, which talk about what is the, uh, what, what do you look forward to your land and what have you done on your land? We have different set of questions at different events. And so people start talking about the land and there are, we have like a seasoned landowner. We have beginning farmers who people are seeking the land who all are, seeking for inspiration and motivation, and they, we learn from each other. Uh, it's a sense of togetherness, the sense of working together. So um, the, the way we feel is that, imagine if we can just bring about change in these number, 37% of women are producers now, and if we can bring about a change uh, in how they steward the land in terms of conserving natural resources or bringing a big impact on the landscape, not only helps them, and it's and the future generations and the kids are watching their moms and that's a big change and that's what is our passion we our team drives on that passion we really want to bring about this uh, love for the land and that's one of the book that's the title of the book as well how we we really want women who are already loving the land and we want to give them the opportunities to take better care of that Got an email from Patty in Lake Mills who writes, I farm a thousand acres with our dairy farm. We have a nutrient management plan for our land. We soil sample the land after every crop to see what nutrients the land needs. Also, we plant cover crops like triticale and winter wheat to keep soil in place. And we rotate between corn, alfalfa, and soybeans. Uh, as a, a fellow livestock farmer, uh, Lauren, can you talk a little bit about some of the other conservation options open for people uh, raising animals? Yeah, as with many conservation opportunities, it, it depends so much what your goals are right. and what your current infrastructure is. Um, and so, you know, on my farm, we're doing rotational grazing, which means moving animals from paddock to paddock regularly. Um, in our situation, it's pretty much every day they move to a new paddock. And that allows us to capture that manure and urea and put it back into the soil and grow more grass. Um, but not everybody is set up to do that. Not everybody has either the, the land base to do it or the labor to do it. Um, and so there are a lot of different ways that people can improve the conservation around their farm. Anything from waterways to um, your, your caller mentioned uh, planting cover crops mm -hmm. to be able to capture some of that manure. There are just so many things. And, and depending on where you're starting from and where you're hoping to go, there are just uh, so many opportunities for people. Esther, in just our last minute or so, I understand the project has gotten an extension now for another couple of years. Uh, what are your hopes to accomplish over the next year or so? 
Oh, we are moving into newer territories. We've been working in 18 tri-counties in, uh, in 18 counties, like six tri-county clusters over the last year. We're looking into moving into 12 more counties this year and the next. And so we really want more women to join us. At present, we almost have like last year alone, we reached out uh, to about 1,000 women landowners who came to our programs and benefited from it. And we're looking to increase those numbers. We're looking to be of value to women landowners. And so I can just call out the uh, the names of the counties that we're going into next year, Trumpelo, La Crosse, Monroe, Dane, Rock, Jefferson, Green Lake, Columbia, Sauk, Eau Claire, Chippewa, and Clark. If you're a woman landowner, please connect with Wisconsin Women in Conservation at www.wiwic.org, www.wiwic.org. We'll get that up at wpr.org slash central time as well, and we'll leave it there. Esther, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. And Lauren, thanks for sharing your work with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Esther Dreiraj is Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and a Research Agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. And Lauren Langworthy is Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. We talked to them today about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project, how it's been helping educate and provide resources to women farmers and other land stewards around the state. I'm Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network.